Angus at Work, a podcast for the profit-minded cattlemen. Brought to you by the Angus Beef Bulletin, we have news and information on health, nutrition, marketing, genetics, and management. So let's get to work, shall we? Hello and welcome to Angus at Work. I'm your host, Casey Brown. Well, if there's one word we have heard more of than any other in the past several years, it would be volatility. It just doesn't seem to go away. Well, we're going to hear it again today, but we're also going to talk about tools to turn that volatility into an opportunity. We're trying something a bit new today with a few segments from interviews done by my co-host Miranda Ryman at the Feeding Quality Forum in August. She was able to talk with Dan Bossy from Ag Resource Company about the current state of the markets and then with Ryan Turner with the StoneX Group about how you can manage volatility with risk management options. So let's dig in. Dan, I've gotten the pleasure of listening to you at Feeding Quality Forums for probably the last 15 years. Last year, you told us a lot about volatility. You told us a lot about, you know, markets, setting your margin, all of those kind of things. What's different this year? Well, the volatility has gotten even more enhanced. We're seeing more volatility, but we're also seeing geopolitical events taking over the headlines of ag markets. And so whether it's the war in Russia with Ukraine, whether it's our friends in China in terms of uh, political angst between the two parties, uh, these are things that weren't available last year but really have come to the fore this year. When I heard you kind of talk about the war on things, you're not just talking about actual wars, though. Tell me about inflation no. and some of those other... It's, it's a lot of things going on. And so as we think about the agricultural markets, we have uh, the war that Russia is inflicting on Ukraine and how that's important to that part of the world in grain. World central banks, including the U.S. central bank, is actually at war with inflation. Inflation globally is at levels we've not seen going back to 1979. And so they are actively raising rates to get inflationary pressures down. It's a blunt end instrument that they're using, but they are trying to hit demand. Then we also have things like Mother Nature. She's at war with global crop production. We've already had more heat and dryness this year in a global perspective than we've seen looking backwards to the early 1970s. And so those three wars are really combined. What we hope that doesn't break out into war would be something between the United States and China or something geopolitical that we can't say, but black swans are flying everywhere. Let's kind of unpack those backwards then. You talked a lot about how from 1942 on that every time that we had a surge in demand for crops, we also had a surge in production. How has that been changing as of late? Well, lately what we've seen is that global crop yields have plateaued. And so we uh, were puzzled by that for quite a long time because normally we think farmers are the best in, the, in what they do in the world. They, they treat crops like they're firstborn. They give them enough uh, fertilizer, chemical, uh, everything that needs to happen. Yeah, there's a little bit of mother nature, but overall we have seen global crop yields rising almost every year since World War II. Then in the last six years, they kind of plateaued and we stepped back and said, what's going on here? Well, what we found out is that there's twice as many droughts, there's twice as many uh, weather problems in terms of extreme heat, which has been very evident in the last year, and that has really started to impact global grain yields. And so heat, more than anything, is one of the biggest villains that we're concerned about, and it doesn't look like it's changing. So uh, we hope anyway that this is temporary, but the data sure leans that this is a trend that may now persist for the next 10 years. And we can't overcome this climate shortage because the land availability. 
So in the United States, within the last year, we've reached something that's new in our shop called peak farmland. Uh, there's about a 240 million acres, give or take a few million acres, and we really don't have additionality in acres. We stole 25 million acres from hay and CRP in the last decade. That's now done. U.S. hay acres at their lowest level since 1907. So if I look at land availability, excluding CRP and hay, we're pretty much maxed out at 270 million acres, and that's something that will be with us that we foresee going forward. So a new concept, much like Europe was 25 years ago, peak farmland in the United States. And demand on those demand on those crop grains is also increasing at kind of record rates. Yeah, the world is uh, increasing its global grain consumption by about eight, one point eight or one point nine percent. So it's it's elevating it as, of course, the world grows and we get more people and better demographics. Also, biofuels has become something that's been more important because of uh, climate change and politicians that want to utilize green fuels both here and in Europe. So both combined is giving us, uh, even though we can produce record large global grain crops, world consumption is bigger than that record, which puts us in a stock declining position, not only last year, but for the last five years. So if you're a cattle feeder looking to price feed, what sense do you make out of any of this? Well, the sense I would say is that the old ranges in corn and soybeans are gone, at least for now. And you need to think about corn cheap under $5 a bushel, expensive, probably over eight and a half. But it's going to be within that range unless we have a dramatic climate event. In the case of soybean meal, it Maybe a little different because we're going to see extra soybean acreage, uh, but it'll take a couple years. But ultimately, soybean meal may fall cheaper than corn, and I say that just because of the renewable diesel and amount of crush that will be ongoing, and the inability for the United States to export a lot of that meal overseas. Going back to the actual geopolitical kind of things, um, that's impacting us right now. But where where would it really get to where you'd call it like a, a crisis? Well, right now we're all engaged in this uh, battle against Russia in the Ukraine. Of course, that's front and center to all of us. Whether or not that battle spreads to the uh, what I would call NATO members will be key in years ahead. You know, if Putin is able to control Ukraine, I don't think he's probably going to stop there. I think he may look at other countries nearby. The other crisis, of course, is between the United States and China, where political wills on both sides are reaching new lows. And if you're in China, it's about bashing America. If you're in the United States, it's about bashing China. What I want to remind everyone in agriculture is China is still our biggest trade partner. And so it would be a bad day for the American farmer if somehow trade with China was either diminished or curtailed. China's anxious to do or continue the phase one agreement negotiated by the Trump administration. It's just that the Biden administration doesn't want to hold out that olive leaf. And so as we sit here today, you worry about how much China will buy from the United States, because if they have a chance to buy it elsewhere, they will, just because made in the USA label is not something that's favored in China at the moment. That's 72 percent. Was that what you said, that we they import 72 percent of their food? Do you see that changing? We don't. Uh, China has a, a, a an arable landmass that won't be increasing. Uh, and so the Chinese will always be beholden to importing large amounts of food and energy, which is why we don't think they're going to be attacking Taiwan anytime soon. But again, uh, if China can source that from Brazil or can source it from uh, our friends in Russia or Australia, they probably will to avoid the United States. Thankfully, those countries don't have big supplies of beef just yet, but something we're watching very carefully as we get into the years ahead. 
So we've talked about feed grain supplies. We've talked about the geopolitical things. Probably last one I want to hit on is beef demand. We see record high prices to consumers. Somebody at the very end here had a great question about how long can they stand that? Yeah, we really don't know. Somewhere along the road, there will be this recession. We don't know how deep it will be. And then the question will be, will consumers trade down from protein maybe to a carbohydrate? Uh, there may be a little of that happening now, but beef demand is rock solid. We're not seeing that changing. A disposable income is still rising. And so today, in fact, the availability and demand for prime beef is record large. And so we see spreads telling us that that demand is going to stay around for some period of time. If we get into that recession, we're going to have to check our, our pulse again on beef demand. But today, with poultry, beef, pork, and beef prices near or at record, there's been no consumer backlash against high prices. One of the reasons being is their wages. Wages keep rising, particularly at the lower end of the market. They're going up, and that's helping, at least for to now, buffer against any protein uh, demand cuts. I appreciate that as a bright spot or some good news and what otherwise seems a little bit, maybe a little bit alarming to our audience. Is there anything else that you have that's good news or that, that we ought to share that you told the audience today? Well, I do believe that we're in a commodity super cycle. By that I'm saying uh, demand for raw materials is going to stay very strong. Uh, we think that depending upon the administration, car carbon and the discussion of going about carbon it will help the U.S. farmer. But I think we as American farmers will also engage in different policies such as cover crops or oilseed crops like Camelia or maybe something we plant in the fall and harvest in the spring. Because with this renewable diesel industry, there's going to be a tremendous demand pull for vegetable oils. And this is something that is assured as we can look forward to the next three to five years. That's a big disruptor that should keep agriculture, American agriculture, quite profitable. Miranda Ryman back here for the Angus at Work podcast. And today we're speaking with Ryan Turner, who just gave a presentation at the Feeding Quality Forum here in Kansas City. Ryan, why don't you just give us kind of a recap of, of what you all talked about today? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you all for having me. It was an exciting uh, presentation. The, the group is huge. There's like 200 plus people here. A great event. I covered some of the new trends, some of the things we're seeing in risk management. Um, so Mr. Bossy gave an outlook on the market markets and, and there's a lot of volatility in the marketplace today, but you still got to manage that market volatility. I think a lot of us would think of risk management as something that's kind of kind of set for the year. I know Carol Lee asked this question, how often should you be looking at what's what's newer available in risk management? Yeah, she did. And I think, honestly, the, the way the markets are today, you, you almost have to reevaluate daily. It's, it's, it's almost a fluid situation. Um, when I started 20 plus years ago, it wasn't so much. You know, you could kind of set your plan for the next three to six months, just kind of go with it, let it come off. Um, today, um, you really have to be looking at your total position every day. And that doesn't mean you're trading every day. That doesn't mean you're doing some crazy off-the-wall strategy every day. But you better be evaluating and looking at your risk every day. And if something needs to be done, then you do it. Talk to me about what is new in the area of risk management, what's come online in the last few years. So I think the biggest change in the trend in risk management in the last probably two to five years has been a gravitation towards more structured, customized products, or what we would call over-the-counter products. Um, these are tools that are more customizable than 
the traditional exchange trader products. Traditional exchange trader products are still far and away the most prevalently used, um, probably still the most liquid, uh, most available to the, to the marketplace. But the trend is towards doing things that are more customizable. If you're a cattle feeder today and you place cattle today that come out in, uh, let's say, mid-September, well, you've got to use October futures or you've got to use October options that expire on a very set, structured time frame. With the OTC marketplace, you could maybe structure hedges that settle on the exact week that you anticipate marketing your cattle. Well, that gives you an advantage or gives you more flexibility in your risk management. The way we look at it, there's really four platforms of risk management. The physical marketplace, futures and options, or the exchange traded, over-the-counter, swaps, swap dealers, um, and then insurance products. And that was the other one I was going to talk about as being new. But those four platforms, you need to have access to all four of them. Is one any better than the other? No. Are there times of the year? Are there certain marketing opportunities where one is better than the other? Absolutely. And you want to be able to use the one that's best at that time. And if you're only using one, you're going to miss opportunities in some of the other platforms of risk management. The other new one that we're seeing is the use of LRP or the government subsidized or federally reinsured insurance products. We're seeing an adoption of those widespread across both cattle and hog producers. Talk to me a little bit about the mechanics of those. When you say LRP. So LRP is, is a short or acronym for Livestock Risk Protection. Uh, that is a government insurance product, or they officially call it a federally reinsured product. Um, basically, it's, it's insurance on the price of cattle, it's available on both live cattle and feeder cattle that is partially subsidized by the USDA. It's the crap insurance of the livestock world. For lack of a better term, absolutely, yeah. And at first, we didn't see great adoption. Um, the products were really restricted to size. You couldn't do very many heads, so it eliminated some of the larger producers, feedlots in particular. Um, but now they've done, uh, or starting with 2023, they've actually made some adjustments to the size that you can put into that program. Uh, I think this year it's going to be up uh, for live cattle. It's 25,000 head. Uh, you can do up to, I think, 12,000 head per policy. Um, so there's some, you know, they're, they're relatively expensive, but so are put options in this marketplace. And a lot of people don't want to use options or insurance because they have to pay for it. Well, in a market like we're in today that can literally move um, multiple standard deviations at a time, spending a little bit of money on insurance or a put option or some type of risk management to give yourself some flexibility at the end may not be very expensive. So if you've looked at LRP before with these changes, is it time to maybe even look at that again? If it didn't fit you before, might it fit, fit your program now? Yeah, so like I said, I think, I think the expansion of the program is making it more inclusive or more uh, accessible for larger producers, i.e. Co commercial cattle feeders. You know, the, the program was designed, I think, in its beginnings specifically for small to mid-sized producers, cow-calf operators, 
25, 50, 75 head of cattle that maybe didn't have access to futures and options and, and OTC swaps and those kinds of things, just didn't have the wherewithal to do it. But the product is reasonable enough and, and a good enough platform for risk management that you had larger producers wanting to use it, and so the government made the adjustment to allow them to use it. Let's dial into those over-the-counter swaps a little bit because as I admitted to you, I, I got into your presentation late and I came in and you were talking about swapping live cattle against trim or, or something of that nature and you had me scratching my head a little bit. Yeah, so you can get as complex. That's the one thing about the over-the-counter market being bilateral, so just between two parties. You can really get as creative and as exotic as you want. You can be very basic or you can get very creative. Um, the one that you in particular are mentioning is, is we have cattle producers that from time to time will sell beef trimming swaps. Beef trimmings are the byproduct of the slaughter process that go into hamburgers. Um, and so we'll at times have people uh, in the livestock business that own cattle use those as, as hedging tools against their cattle. That's probably one of the more uh, exotic structures that we see people use, but they absolutely can work. And so who dreams up like what they should be selling against or who, I mean, does a producer come to you with an idea? Do you guys have a standard set of here's all the products we offer? Yeah. So, so as a registered swap dealer, Stonex has a standard listing of products that we, we offer. Everything has to go through a standardized, um, or not standardized, but a, a structured onboarding new product process. Uh, all the swap dealer products are reported to the swap data repository, which is part of the regulatory process through the U.S. government. So it's, it is a, as less of the wild, wild west than it used to be, say, five, ten years ago. Um, but with that said, every product that's on the product listing was asked for by a customer. So if, if a customer has something that they want to hedge that they can't today, bring it to us. The worst thing that could happen is that we don't have an outlet for it. The best thing that could happen is that we design a new product and a new tool for, for a new customer. So I'm a words person more than a market person, so you're going to have to, this might be a question just for me, maybe everybody else knows the answer to this, but usually on the opposite end of, a, you know, how trades work, you have somebody on the opposite end, so who's on the opposite end of, like, the swaps we're talking about here? Yeah, so in any marketplace, you're right, there's buyers and sellers. The main, the main participants in uh, the, the beef swaps in particular are livestock producers, retail, restaurant, grocer, so the food service type space, speculative market makers. In every commodity market, there's a speculative market maker that's you know, standing in there just taking risk. Um, and, then, and then producers. And so that's, uh, that's really the, the market participants. Now in the broader OTC space, the market participants are endless. Which is exciting because then you've got a lot of people backing or willing to withstand that risk for yeah. you. And these same people are participating in futures and options on the exchange-traded products. They're, you know, they're participating in, in virtually all of the platforms. And that's what I go back to, like we talked about at the very beginning. If you're managing risk, you really need to have access to all of the tools available. 
this is all really great information that you've given us here today. Is there anything else that you think producers need to know as they consider risk management or specifically customizing their risk management? Volatility is not going away anytime soon. And I think as we go forward, if anything, you may see more volatility in the marketplace. And I'll go back to one of my very first slides. Volatility is absolutely risk but it's also opportunity. And so use that volatility to your advantage when the market presents you that opportunity. Be ready to take advantage of it. And again, to have access to all of the tools available to, to make that happen. So rather than being fearful of it, feel a little bit empowered. Embrace it. It's opportunity. Thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time to visit with us. Thank you. Listeners, to get more information to help make Angus work for you, check out the resources to our print Angus Beef Bulletin and digital Angus Beef Bulletin Extra in our show notes. You'll be seeing more coverage from the Feeding Quality Forum coming up in both publications, so make sure you're subscribed. And we want to hear from you. Let us know your ideas and comments at abbeditorial at angus.org. And we'd sure appreciate it if you would rate this podcast, tell us what you learned and what was helpful, and share this episode with any other profit-minded cattlemen. For Angus at Work, this is Casey Brown, and thanks for listening.